The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi, looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. Just about everywhere I go now, I look at machines and I think, how can that be made electric? Every leaf blower, every whippersnipper, every tractor, every car, every truck, every ship, every plane, every little machine in the huge chain of production that is our economy, how do we make it electric? That's our challenge because... Again this week, we were reminded by the UN Environmental Programme ahead of this week's uh, big COP conference looking at how to reduce emissions that we are way behind. To give you an idea, the UN is saying that if we continue on with our current pathways, so that includes the promises made by governments to reduce emissions, then we are headed for a world that is 2.9 degrees above pre-industrial levels by the end of this century. Remember, anything much above 1.5 degrees, and we risk triggering some tipping points, which means things like the glaciers melting or the methane in the tundra of uh, the world's frozen areas becoming dislodged and going into the atmosphere and warming it disastrously. Or some of the methane trapped at the bottom of the sea becoming dislodged. Or carbon trapped at the bottom of the sea becoming dislodged. All sorts of feedback loops become a risk above 1.5 degrees. We know as well that we're pretty much already at 1.5 degrees. In fact, last week we had our first global air temperature that was two degrees over the pre-industrial levels. Now, this is just one area and one day, but it's clear that uh, something has happened this year and things are happening much faster in terms of warming. The UN came out this week with a report called Emissions Gap 2023, Broken Record. Temperatures hit new highs yet world fails to cut emissions. There's a quite striking image on the front cover of the report of a record uh, that looks like one of those wobbly red line circles that you often see to describe what's happened to temperatures that looks like a record that's broken. We're just not getting there fast enough. And to do it much, much faster, we have to electrify everything. 
because with the projected uh, levels of emissions reduction, we are still on track to actually increase total emissions by 3% by 2030. When, if we're going to get anywhere near 2 degrees, they have to fall by 28%. And they have to fall by 42% if we're going to get anywhere near 1.5 degrees. So it's 2023, really the end of 2023. There are six years left to reduce global emissions by 42%. Now that means turning everything that is currently powered by petrol and diesel and jet fuel into an electric thing. How are we going to do that? Well, you might recall an interview I had with Saul Griffiths a few months ago, an Australian who helped put together the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States. And he has formed a couple of organisations, one of which is uh, Rewiring Australia, and he's helped uh, create an organisation in New Zealand called Rewiring Aotearoa, which looks at this very task. How do you electrify everything? On this week's When the Facts Change, I speak to Mike Casey, who is the CEO of Rewiring Aotearoa. And it's been launched to try and go through all of those little details of how you electrify everything. Mike is in a fantastic position because he's done that for his own cherry farm in the South Island. You may wonder, how do cherries grow with electric power? Well, actually, no, they don't, of course. They're powered by the sun and the earth and plenty of water. But there are lots of parts in the production chain that do rely currently on diesel, diesel tractors. And most importantly, diesel fans, which are designed to stir the air and make sure that cherries don't freeze at that key point when they're about to ripen. And there's the risk of a cold snap. This week on When the Facts Change, we talk about what it would take to rewire Aotearoa with Mike Casey and why every little detail in the chain, every little machine needs to go electric. Kia ora, and welcome, Mike Casey, to When the Facts Change. Lovely to see you from way down south. Kia ora, Bernard. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Now, we're on here to talk about the launch of Rewiring Aotearoa, which uh, is in many ways a, a, um, a follow-on or a next step from a couple of big projects in uh, Australia and the U.S., uh, rewiring Australia, and also um, in the in the wake of all the excellent work that Saul Griffith has done, um, and for our regular listeners, I'd suggest going back to having a listen to that interview with Saul Griffith, who's the um, the sort of philosophical um, guiding light behind the rewiring uh, movement. Um, Mike, though, um, your story about electrifying things, could you tell us? where you've gone over the last few years and, and what you've done on your cherry farm in the South Island. Yeah, for sure. Well, I, um, I grew up in Wellington and after graduating with a computer science degree from Victoria University, left for Sydney for 12 years where I founded a, um, a startup, which was a, a website for university students, essentially a job board that got acquired by Seek in 2019. Um, and that gave my wife and I and our young family the perfect opportunity to close that chapter and moved back to our home country, New Zealand, um, and would that get to choose where in New Zealand that we would love to live? And we'd been just coming back to 
the Wanaka region um, for many years for, for ski holidays and things like that and decided at the end of it that this is the region that we wanted to live. And long story short, found a farm 30 minutes south of Wanaka with a nice house on it for the same price as a four-bedroom house in Wanaka um, and decided for that reason that we were going to move to rural New Zealand, and um, which is quite the contrast to the concrete jungle of Sydney. And, and here we are. And then basically had a lot of spare land. Um, we had nine hectares in total, which is really different from the townhouse in the western suburbs of Sydney where we were living in the inner west there in Glebe. And, uh, yeah, we decided that uh, what we'll do what every person in central Otago with a spare plot of land does and, and, and put some cherry trees in. So planted 9,300 cherry trees, which became, you know, what we wanted to do next. And I always wanted to do something um, in the climate change space and here we were with a brand new operation with a hundred purchasing decisions in front of us. Um, and we just decided very early on, you know, we've got the capital. We don't have any barriers to doing this. So why don't we attempt to build this orchard without any use of fossil fuels at all? And that's, uh, that's essentially where, where we've managed to get to over the last three years. So what was the, the challenge in front of you to switch from, you know, using petrol and diesel and, electricity uh, that may have come from um, fossil fuel generation. What, what did you? What machines did you have to switch? Yeah, so there was a lot. Um, and I think the big thing that we, you know, we had to do is we were learning from others, right? Like I, I don't in any way try to claim that we were good cherry farmers. In fact, we're still learning a lot from the, the cherry growers around us um, about how to grow really good cherries. And a lot of the machines that they use, in fact, the majority of the machines that they use were fossil fuel-based machines. Um, so that is everything, obviously, from the cars that they drive um, to the massive frost-fighting fans that you'll see um, littered all over the countryside in central Otago, which are designed to keep the frost off the, the stone fruit and stop that fruit from, you know, from, from perishing in frost. Um, everything from, from that to the vehicles that we get around Orchard on to the irrigation pumps that we use, um, right through now uh, to the tractors that we that we drive. Um, and so, yeah, it was a big challenge because no one really had done this before. Um, and not only that, a lot of the technology that we now have implemented on our orchard didn't exist within New Zealand. It had to be sourced from from all over the world, whether it be uh, souped-up golf carts from, from Alibaba in, in China, uh, whether it be electric tractors from California, um, or whether it be electric frost-fighting fans from South Africa of all places. Um, and getting all those imported and, and, and uh, onto farm installed and working, you know, has made me realise something really big here, which is, you know, electrification is more than the sum of its parts when you have everything working really closely together. Uh, everything starts to work much, much better. And so there was a lot of challenges in that path, and we're finally at the stage now where um, I can say we're just as, um, you know, just as efficient operationally uh, as any other orchard uh, around this area, um, but we do so you know, while also being much more financially efficient in terms of um, our energy OPEX costs. Yeah. Um, I'm curious about one of those devices in particular, the fans. Um, you're right. Whenever I've been in that area, they look big machines. And I'm always curious uh, how they worked and what they ran on and, you know, how you'd replace them with, with an electric one. Because I'm, I'm guessing a bunch of power boards and um, extension cables doesn't cut it. That's right. So they, uh, those incumbent frost-fighting fans will burn anywhere between 30 to 40 litres of diesel an hour, depending on the model. Um, it's quite expensive. We have two of them. The way, the way they work is they pull down the warm air from above, mix it around the orchard to bring the average temperature of the orchard up and therefore um, bring the temperature above the critical temperature where your fruit buds you know, start to perish. 
But everyone was telling me at the time that, you know, oh, that's far too much electricity, you know, far too much power is required in order to spin these fans. And in reality, it's just not, you know, it wasn't actually true. I think the thing is we had to go through a rather sort of cumbersome pathway of upgrading our uh, connection to our to our farm, getting three-phase, getting the right grid connection to make it all work. But at the end of the day, these are stationary motors that are spinning around blades. Um, so if, if anything, they're the absolute perfect thing to electrify. Um, and to this day, the single piece of equipment where we save the most operational expenses on just because of the sheer amount of diesel we save by by not not have going with the incumbent product. I'm curious to sort of drill down a bit into this cost savings idea because one of the issues, I think, uh, in you know shifting any economic model is the first complaint is, ah, that's going to cost us more. It's going to cost us money. And who's going to give me some money to help me get over the hump of the extra costs? Totally. And uh, I frankly don't don't like extra costs, so... Um, uh, I'm, I'm not so keen on this idea, but can you sort of detail, you know, let's say the cost of running these fans per hour from electricity versus the cost of running them from diesel. 30 litres of diesel an hour doesn't sound cheap. Yeah, no, it's it, it's definitely not. So these are, what we have is 30 kilowatt frost fighting fans and we have two of them. So I've done all my modelling off, um, you know, being charged out 30 cents a, a kilowatt hour or $2.50 for a litre of diesel. Um, and, you know, we will fight. Every season's going to be different. I've done, gone with an assumption of 120 hours of runtime. In reality, you know, some seasons it's 80, um, 80 hours and other times it's 200 hours, so 120 seems about right. And across the two frost fighting fans, we, you know, at those figures we save about 18000 nearly $19,000 a year. And the market payback on them, you know, compared to the additional cost of actually installing electric fostering fans including all the cables uh the market payback's actually only a couple of years or 203 hours of runtime you know in total so it's a really significant saving um and possibly you know and by far if we're looking at one individual energy stream by far the most efficient you know financial return that you can have here on, on the orchard for sure and um when you think about the overall cost of running the orchard you know per i'm guessing box of cherries kilogram of cherries um you know how does how do your costs uh compare with others and uh as you say the the payback time for the capital costs is it off the planet is it is it close it's exciting in new zealand i think because you know when you compare to us a lot like a country like america our fossil fuels are just so much more expensive. And then you look on the other side at the fact that we have such a strong, you know, hydroelectricity network um, in this country. Our cost of electricity is actually really low. And as a result, paybacks on on, on doing this, um, if we, we'll, we'll keep solar, solar separately for now, the paybacks just on the electrification of everything, you know, we basically save about $30,000 a year in energy savings uh, just with, you know, just by replacing all of that diesel incumbent technology and gas incumbent technology with that, with that of electrics. Um, and by the time we add solar into the mix, because, of course, when you electrify everything, your power bill goes right up, which makes the payback on solar so much more rewarding. You know, we're, we're getting down to the fact that, you know, we're a six-hectare orchard or a 5.8-hectare orchard, and the energy that we're saving is pretty much the equivalent of adding another hectare of cherry trees to our orchard. So it's a really significant, you know, cost savings. And I think the big thing is, is that we've been able to do this 
because I had the luxury of capital from selling my business. Um, we're looking at a total additional cost of around about four hundred and fifty, you know, four hundred and fifty thousand um, dollars, and an energy savings of you know thirty grand. So you know the the overall payback is is there. It's still not necessarily um, you know something that when. Uh, it's still not necessarily something that is going to convince people yet to move over there, but it's getting a lot closer, which is which is a super exciting place to for, to be in in terms of uh, kicking off the electrification of everything. And one of the challenges of electrifying everything is, as you say, you know, you can't just um, plug it into your existing plugs. Uh, then the networks need to be upgraded. You know, maybe you need new boxes and um, new conversion machines uh, in, along the network. I obviously don't know my electricity <laughs> words, but I can I can fill in the gap there quite comfortably. Like we had to spend a hundred and ten thousand um, dollars to get our connection upgraded. And I could sort of use the analogy now that that's kind of like the ante to play the game. And it's probably the single biggest barrier to entry for getting people to um, electrify on farm uh, in a lot of cases, especially here in central Otago, where we often don't have the grid connection capacity available, uh, you know, on our orchards in order to be able to do this. So you have to, you know, it's almost like the the upfront capital cost to get the grid connection is a one-off cost that could be spread across every single, you know, the cost of every single machine that you then electrify and it works out quite nicely. But if you're looking at doing just just one thing or slowly replacing the um, you know the diesel machinery on orchard with the electrics that first initial cost is a um, is a big hit and probably the the single biggest reason you know that to this date we've had these electric phosphating fans for three years and we've only just now seen the second organization in New Zealand uh, import these electric fans from overseas so um, it's a slow burn in that regard um, but hopefully you know we can we can work out ways to sort of make that capital cost be you know less confronting for the consumer or for the power user i think that ultimately is the the long-term goal that's going to help us electrify our small businesses when the facts change is brought to you in partnership with kiwibank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy and that's what their team of experts is here to do too here's kiwibank's chief economist jared kerr on what's happening with inflation in 2024 Globally, inflation rose to really high levels. We saw inflation averaging over 10% uh, last year. Now central banks have reacted. They've tightened monetary policy. They've lifted interest rates to levels where it hurts. We've seen growth slow down and we're seeing inflation coming off, which is great news because we import a lot of inflation from the rest of the world and that imported inflation is easing. So half the job that we're trying to do locally is is being done for us offshore. The other half, the domestic bit, well, that's the tough bit. That's the sticky inflation that's coming out of a housing market, it's coming out of construction, it's coming out of service industries, then it's going to be hard to contain. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Talo for lover. I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spin-Off. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a Spin-Off member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. Because that lines network part of the uh, chain is seen by some as the weak link. Many lines companies are 
owned by community trusts or councils. Uh, they don't see themselves as capital rich. Uh, whenever they need to, you know, add a, a new transformer or a new line, they tend to lump the entire cost onto the the marginal user, which makes that um, pretty brutal if you're the first marginal user. Um, how are we going to solve this this lines network economics problem, which means that the the chicken is well and truly before the egg, and it's the first hen who um, has to do all the squeezing and 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 laying um and often you know <laughs> might die in the process i've got some pretty strong opinions around this I, I think sort of to give you a little bit of background um on what i've gone and done to sort of to get around this 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 issue is we've overbuilt our solar massively um on farm and we have a large battery array as well which is something that's pretty required for resilience especially when you're running an electric orchard where all your irrigation for example is electric uh, you need to be able to back that up in the event that there's a power cut or a, you know a multi-day power cut and what i wanted to do was use these assets that i had to basically um, at the time i saw it almost as a civic duty where i was like i've got these batteries i can actually export power back to the grid you know when the grid needs it when when my community needs it um and i realized really quickly that there's not really a, a a way to do that or a way to be, I, I guess, no commercial incentive for uh, people with, you know, batteries behind the meter to be able to start exporting back. Um, the feedback tariffs from the retailers were quite low. And I ended up going on a wholesale spot price market contract with Simply Energy so that I could basically buy and sell power and almost I actually ended up writing my own software so I could arbitrage that power as that was the only way that I could contribute um, to the grid and also, um, you know, extraction value, some value back out of that for all the capital that I had spent, um, you know, specifically on the, on the on the solar and battery setup. To put that in perspective, you know, in July we had really volatile spot prices, and I was buying power at about four cents a kilowatt hour on the wholesale spot price market on average, and I sold it on average for for well over seventy cents a kilowatt hour. Um, and, you know, we, we imported a lot with winter. There's not a lot of solar on. So we imported a lot more power, you know, into our, uh, our farm than we, than we exported back out. But we almost entirely eliminated our, our July energy bill on farm by doing that. So there's a real opportunity out there. And I, I actually think, you know, my strong opinion lies that we need to sort of change the culture because I think the customer and the distributor are actually possibly the best you know, they could be the best alliance if we did this right, where, you know, there was not only feedback tariffs at the retailer level, but potentially if there's a customer in a location that, you know, is a big concern to the distributor, that distributor could obviously be paying um, to have that customer um, help back up the grid as well. So that's a big part of where I want to see this go um, in the future. I think the, the real, you know, we've never really thought about it this way, but consumer and the lines company as a as a allied pair um, would be a pretty strong force in the in the energy industry for sure. And one of the challenges for electrifying everything is, as you say, that sort of upfront cost and who bears it and how it's shared. One of the solutions uh, that Saul Griffiths was involved in was the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States, in which the government essentially provided uh, large subsidies to get things started, to kickstart the whole process, so to get over this big capital hump and that involved, you know, the U.S. government borrowing a bunch of money, and uh, the potential um, subsidies involved are into the tens of trillions of dollars. You know, multiple percentage points of GDP. Uh, our government, uh, like many governments for the last thirty years, has been reluctant to provide subsidies of that scale for 
businesses or consumers. Uh, um, Electrify Aotearoa um, will obviously be be looking to um, uh, provide you know, policy advice and data for all of the policymakers and voters and businesses and everyone. How much of a challenge is it going to be, given that uh, um, the United States and, to a lesser extent, uh, Australia, but more than here, are happier to um, provide the the capital to kickstart things? I think the um, the the big part of this is to understand the really unique energy transition that we are about to go through. I think the the best way of looking at it, or the best way that I can explain it, really, is that. If we use my farm as an example, and everyone's going to have a slightly different, you know, set of numbers here, but to electrify everything on farm is about thirty thousand um, dollars. I have saved on not spending money on foreign oil um, that instead stays within my business. And I think when I add solar and batteries into the mix, there's about another fifteen thousand, you know, fifteen thousand dollars there. So we're looking at about forty five thousand dollars worth of worth of savings in total. And if we can shift that expenditure, which the customer is going to be spending anyway on foreign oil, and turn that into financial products, where instead of that, instead of spending that money on oil, we're now servicing a financial product, that's the ultimate outcome that I see as a way that we can essentially remove the burden of the upfront capital cost from the customer, allow them to electrify, and then allow them to use the savings from that electrification, you know, to to, to service that debt over a period of time. That would be sort of where I would see, you know, a particular policy that ultimately would not necessarily cost the taxpayer taxpayer money. It also wouldn't be a subsidy. It would be people just allowing, you know, them to, to, to pay for that capital cost over time through the savings that they generate from the purchasing decisions they make. Um, so that's one, you know, that's one thing I'm particularly in favour of. Yeah, because in a way, this seems like a simple financing task that some sort of financial intermediary would step in and essentially uh, use a balance sheet of some sort and um, provide the you know a loan or some sort of equity upfront, and then charge a, a fee, if you like, um, which would be matched against the savings you make over time. And uh, over time, you solve that problem. But it seems as if the financial institutions, and in, in New Zealand at least, haven't been able to or aren't equipped to step in and be that financier in this, uh, you know, financial problem, if you like. We're all on the cusp of, you know, what to do. And I think, you know, what a number of the banks have done in New Zealand that's been really good is the low interest loans on electrification. Uh, the real thing is we need to extend that finance out, not for, you know, three years or five years or whatever the limit might be, but actually to the the, li- the expected lifetime of the appliance that we're purchasing. Because by doing that, that allows us to, you know, bring down the, um, allows us to almost definitely pay back the that, that appliance with the, with the savings from fossil fuels. And I think that's something that, you know, that's what rewiring Aotearoa is all about, you know, whether it's um, through government policy or whether it's supporting, uh, you know, the, the private market to, to make these decisions and, and, and design these financial products. We just want to be a part of that because, you know, I think um, I can't remember the name of the U.S. senator in question, but something that she said that I thought was amazing is that we're probably on the the verge of the greatest wealth transfer in human history from the traditional suppliers of energy to the traditional consumers of energy because there's just that much savings that can be had through weaning our way off fossil fuels. Politically, though, you know, this is one of the great rules of political economy is that when people 
see the potential for you know a shift of wealth or uh, revenue flows from one group of people who who own the assets to another group who don't own, who own different assets or not any assets at all the people who own the assets quite like the status quo and how do you see electrify Aotearoa as part of the catalyst for you know shifting some of that status quo well, I think, you know, from my own personal experience, it has been about doing this all myself and then realising the barriers that are in place where I can't go much further in terms of electrified my whole farm, but being able to add value back to the national grid is something that is, a, you know, that is still a market that I think needs to be, um, the regulation around that needs to be developed to allow smaller players like myself to play. And I think that's exactly where rewiring comes in is, we need to be the voice of the actual everyday New Zealander, their community, um, their small business, their farms, right, where there are literally tens of millions of machines in New Zealand that their fate will ultimately be decided by, you know, conversations that we, that, that people have around the dinner table. Um, and there's serious lag on that, right, in that if, you, if someone tomorrow goes out and buys a new gas water heater, for example, they're locking in. 15 years of additional emissions that New Zealand is going to have to somehow account for. And so I think, you know, our whole thing is representing the the typical New Zealander and the businesses that they run and making sure that the right regulations, the right policies um, and the right financial incentives are in place um, so that we can, the next time they make a purchasing decision about any one of those 10 million machines, the obvious answer is the electric option. And so that's that's really where we sit. Mike Casey, the CEO of the new Electrify Aotearoa, thank you so much for being on When the Facts Change. Thank you very much, Bernard. Thanks for having me on. Kia ora. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how Kiwi Bank are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi, Kiaihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spinoff member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spinoff Podcast Network.